You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. This episode is a rebroadcast of our recent town hall called Raise the Bar, Policy Shaping Pathways. On this event, we were lucky to be joined by two policy gurus, Dr. Amy Lloyd, Assistant Secretary of the Department of Education, and Julie Lammers, Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Social Corporate Responsibility at American Student Assistance. You might know them better as ASA. Together, we discussed how recent policies at the state and federal level are driving school change through intentionally building and designing pathways towards student success. We are really fortunate today to have a, a couple of pathway policy experts with us. You've heard from both of them already. Dr. Amy Lloyd is the Assistant Secretary at the uh, U.S. Department of Education. And uh, Amy's been there a couple years, but before that, many of you uh, got to know her and her work at Jobs for the Future. She she led the Pathways to Prosperity there for, it was a decade, wasn't it, Amy? I was at JFF for nearly 10 years. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're super glad to have you here. Um, you've been in and around this pathways space as long as we've been thinking about them as, uh, as pathways and pathway policies. We're also joined by our friend Julie Lammers from uh, ASA, American Student Assistance in uh, Boston. There she's the Senior VP for Advocacy and Corporate Social Responsibility. Um, and ASA has just been a the, really the leading um, pathways partner for American schools for the last 10 years. And Julie has led their uh, policy work. And uh, Julie, we're really excited to have you with us today too. All right, we're gonna dive in. Um, I, I, I wanna start with Amy, if we could. Um, Amy, uh, Secretary Cardona uh, made a big announcement uh, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, an, an umbrella called Raise the Bar, uh, where he he talked about the department support for pathways and why it's really uh, one of the top priorities. But uh, why don't you start by telling us what, what is Raise the Bar and where do pathways and pathway policies fit in in the department's priorities? Absolutely. Well, I, I am thrilled to be able to work with a secretary and for a secretary and for an administration that really understands and elevates the role of career connected learning as a powerful driver for transformation for our nation's schools. Um, I, I am committed to our work because I you know, ultimately believe that uh, everything that we do should be grounded in equity and meeting our learners where they are, supporting them where they want to be in their careers and in their communities, and that education should live up to the promise of providing ultimately lifelong and economic social mobility for all. And that's why I loved Secretary Cardona's Raise the Bar, Lead the World speech that he uh, presented just a few weeks ago here in D.C., in which he outlined his core goals for our uh, agency and for our education agenda for the administration at large. And there are three big buckets of goals. And one is around, you know, of course, you know, strengthening learning outcomes. Another is around the conditions for learning. And the third is really around uh, engaging in 
a, a globally competitive and collaborative world. And so of these three buckets, there are two goals in, in each. And within the you know, global engagement bucket, there is uh, unlocking career success, which really the secretary talks about at every opportunity he has, which is his charging me and my wonderful team at the Office of Career Technical and Adult Education to work in partnership with Department of Labor, Department of Commerce, the White House, other offices within ED, all of you, our colleagues in the public, to really reimagine career and college pathways to be one of his core priorities for kind of reimagining education writ large. Uh, and, and specifically, he wants us to rethink how high schools need to evolve to really meet today's needs and tomorrow's economy. And in his speech, if you haven't heard it or read it, I recommend you do so because it really does elevate the importance that the administration is placing on the value of career pathways and multiple pathways for all, not just those pathways for some. And the secretary in his speech challenges Frankly, our nation's often really myopic view that uh, emphasizing the importance of career pathways is an options limiter. So sometimes I hear from parents or even from educators that, you know, aren't career pathways just about producing young people to be widgets to work in a machine and not young people to think for themselves and navigate a complex world? Or I often hear like, how can my 14-year-old like possibly even know what she wants to do for the rest of her life? Or uh, I get from educators a lot, like the jobs of the future don't even exist today, so we can't possibly prepare students for them. But on the contrary, like what I love about Secretary Cardona's stance in this, because he has lived this himself, he knows that high quality career pathways are options multipliers for students that ultimately like empower students and families to be able to make real choices about their futures, to be able to compete on a global stage in our rapidly shifting economy. And we know that like research and evidence and the lived experiences of our young people all say this. And I, I love Tom that you called out the the voices of youth um, in the poem, because I, I love how Gen Z is really speaking and we need to do a better job of listening to inform our policy and our practices, because often it's our adult mindsets that get in the way of what pathways are or could be or should be. Um, also in his speech, he, he was challenging this longstanding kind of all too dominant paradigm that it's four-year college or bust right out of high school. And uh, what I love about the work that I get to lead at the department is really unearthing what, what those of us who have worked in college and career pathways or career and technical education know to be true, the huge array of rewarding possibilities in the sub-baccalaureate space. And, uh, and so I, I don't ever want to foreclose on further education for young people's futures. I want to say like there are no wrong doors and no dead ends in career pathways, but I want to make sure that, you know, we are giving our young people and their students the full array of opportunity and not just bringing to our education advising systems and the way that we support young people to make decisions, the biases from our own lived experiences, right? Those of us who work in education came up through four-year degrees ourselves. That was our path to success. And so we, we, even the most highly educated educators or parents don't necessarily know the incredible jobs and industry sectors that are available in today's economy and into the future. So when we're thinking about how we advise and support our young people and their families to make real choices, we need to make sure that we're really thinking differently about where we are uh, as a workforce, as an economy, as a world, um, and really ground all that we're doing in, in equity and excellence and ensure that all career pathways do lead to bright futures. Because I, 
I also want to acknowledge that the four-year college or bus mentality can be really hard for so long. And frankly, not so long ago, our schools were determining who was college material and who should go straight to work. And by no surprise, that largely cut along race and class lines. And options were limited by gender too. And so I know that so many of our communities of color have fought so hard for access to four-year college and beyond that anything in the sub-baccalaureate space feels like we're losing ground in justice and equity, but that's not the case anymore. And so the secretary is really um, calling us to stand on equity and excellence, stand on like lifelong learning and not a one and done, you know, from high school into a college, into the world of work, but rather an integration of work and learning over one's lifetime to really you know, ensure that our young people are prepared for the changing economic conditions. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about what unlocking career success is specifically. You know, we have four core pillars in it. We have a new grant competition that we'll be running for it. We have a bigger initiative for it, but uh, I also want to make sure that I give space for Julie to give some introductory remarks too, because I could go on for the full hour myself. <laughs> Amy, um... When, when when we think about the federal government's role in pathways, yeah. I guess I think of Perkins and Pell. Yep. Uh, but are there are there other federal policies that you think are really important, and are there any updates in in any of the federal policy areas that you want to highlight? Well, uh, if we were having this conversation in a couple of weeks, I would happily speak to the president's FY24 budget, which will be coming out at the end of next week, and I would happily follow up with anyone on that. But with respect to like the the broad funding structures that we have. You're right, Perkins funds career and technical education, which uh, is really the foundation of the secretary's vision for unlocking career success. But really unlocking career success is bigger than CTE. So it's you know a vision for every single student in high school to have at least 12 college credits by the time they graduate high school. So ideally their first English class, their first math class, so they don't get stuck in developmental education, uh, remediation and post-secondary from which far too few students ever emerge. Uh, and then a couple of CTE or career connected classes, work, real world work-based learning experiences. So hands-on kind of authentic application of knowledge and practice in work-based settings, earning a first industry credential that's ideally stackable, portable, uh, latticeable, all the things we want credentials to be and have students also have uh, ongoing iterative career and college advising and navigation supports. So those are the four core pillars of unlocking career success, which are grounded in CTE. But we're announcing a, a $25 million grant competition this year to build out ecosystems of what it might look like to blur the lines between high school, post-secondary, and the world of work for all students, not just those who are fortunate to be in really great high-quality CTE programs. So thinking about Perkins as the foundation, but really looking broadly across ed at multiple funding streams and broadly across the federal family. Uh, one of the things that I'm been charged with since day one in the administration is working at hand in hand with our partners at Labor and Commerce. So I meet weekly, if not more frequently, with uh, my counterparts at Labor and Commerce. We're developing shared policy, shared strategy, aligning our programs and funding opportunities to the degree possible, ensuring that we have a unified vision for a youth workforce development agenda, um, and trying to break down the silos at the federal level and trying to uh, lean into the, the blurred lines and the partnership that we know 
has to exist between education, workforce development, and economic development that we want to see at the state, regional, and local levels too. And so uh, last November, we released a Dear Colleague letter that I'll drop the link into the chat for that shows uh, exemplars across the country of how different states and, and locals are using American Rescue Plan funds, for example, to, to fund different aspects of career pathway systems. So whether it's ARP funds, whether it's you know, ESSA funds, like you know, elementary and secondary education can fund many of these aspects, looking at higher ed differently, looking at some of the competitive grants, whether it's through EIR or FIPSI or the whole array of acronyms that ED has for our funding mechanisms. Like there are many connections beyond just Perkins and CTE from the funding stance to look at here for sure. Thank you, Amy. Um, we, we love the idea that uh, grant program to accelerate pathways. What's that grant program called, Amy? So we're we're going to uh, announce a notice of proposed priorities and go out to rulemaking to get public feedback to make sure that we're we're calibrating in the right direction. But it's called Unlocking Career Success. The grant is Career Connected High Schools. That's really exciting. We'll include that link in our show notes. Shawnee, this is exciting news, right? Shawnee used to run uh, career and technical education in Kansas City, and she's leading our pathway efforts to help students experience success in what's next. So we right. love that idea of blurring the lines. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, Amy and Julie, for both of you, but it is really exciting. And it was interesting because literally right before this conversation, I was talking to my son, who's just a couple of years outside of high school. And I was just talking to him about his high school experience. And he was saying that things didn't really open up for him until like his junior year. And he thought that was way too late. And yep. so he was saying like every high school experience should like be a CTE experience beginning the freshman year, because that's where the real life skills actually happen. Because obviously he's on the other side of it now um, where he's experiencing life and he wished that he had more opportunity to learn that in high school. And so he said that freshman year should like lead them to wherever they're going to go because and like set them up with a good game plan because and then, and then spend the next like four yeah. years working that game plan instead of just like learning things in silos. So I'm really, yeah. I'm really vibing with, you know, the way that you're presenting information because Absolutely. it's so applicable. Well, 11th grade is way too late. And if anything, we need to start in middle grades and earlier in the career exploration side. And I know has done great work in I, that space. You're speaking Julie's language. So. <laughs> Julie, why, why, why start in middle grades? Why does career oh. exploration have to start there? Yeah, I mean, we, we always say no later than middle grades, right? Because by the time kids get to middle school, they're already foreclosing options. And as, as Amy says, we want these to be options multipliers, not uh, and not get to a point where students are too, down, too far down a path that they can't pivot, they can't try something new. So uh, we really, we agree with you, Shani, but we think that needs to start at least by middle school um, and really applaud the administration's efforts to shed some light on that needed expansion. Julie, what, what other uh, federal policies are important to pathways and, and anything that you want to highlight about um, Amy's comments? Yeah, there's so, so much and so much good that's going on. We really um, appreciate the administration's effort to to shed light on this. I think one of the biggest things from a federal policy standpoint, right, is to change the mindset around what's needed. And the administration really using its bully pulpit to say, this is necessary, this is important to all of us, and this is how we align resources is really an important first step. Um, it, I think the, the articulation of where states can begin to use federal dollars on a lot of this work will be necessary. There's a lot of money floating around out there, particularly with uh, over the last couple of years, 
what is needed is a well-articulated vision of how that can be used to move a pathways agenda along. Um, and so, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that Amy is focusing some time and attention on that. I, I think another area that the federal government and federal policy can really lean in on is bringing employers to the table. This is not a problem solely to be solved by education and educators. And there is both a mindset shift that needs to happen with employers to say that I'm actively engaging in this problem because not only does it help my pipeline and improve my you know, employer pipeline, but that I want to help solve a nationwide challenge with workforce development and career readiness. There are two separate issues there, right? Employers understand that they're sort of primary focus is on getting their business to work well and effectively and, and contribute to the economy. And a piece of that is making sure we have a pipeline uh, of workers that can participate in that. So bringing employers in, I think, is a big piece of what um, federal, federal, the federal government can also do. It is helping to shift that mindset. So highlighting those that are doing it really, really well, um, but also what are the incentives uh, in place that the federal government might push in order to encourage some of this work? You know, we've talked a little bit about the idea around you know tax and tax incentives for employers taking on work-based learning in high school, um, expansion of existing programs to think differently about how uh, employers are encouraged to participate in these programs. So that mind shift shift is certainly necessary. Um, there is also probably a lot that can be done around um, highlighting best practices. States are doing a lot of really good work in uh, career pathways, but everyone is doing it slightly differently. Um, everyone is running into the same obstacles and yet are reinventing the wheel and trying to figure out how do I tackle things like liability, like insurance issues, like workman's comp challenges in work-based learning. Um, all states are pretty much working in silos to fix these problems. So how can we collectively work across regions, work nationally on these issues to make sure that there are no reasons for employers to say no to participating in these programs um, and that there can be massive expansion. So those are sort of big picture uh, areas where I think we That's can lean in. That's a great start, Julie. Um, I, I wanna give a shout out to Lee Fenton who in chat said, hey, it's not just middle grades, It's it's P12. We agree, Lee. Absolutely. If, if you want to learn more about that, join us at the uh, World of Work Summit in San Diego, March 24 and 25. Many, many folks on this call will, will be there. It's a, an ASA-sponsored event. Um, Cajon Valley, our friends in East San Diego County that have really done a lot of pioneering work in P12 career exploration uh, are going to be leading the way at the summit. So hope you can join us for that. Uh, Amy, I, I, one, you can build on anything that Julie said, but two, I want to, I want to pivot to um, sort of a more specific list of policy pathways um, for this part of the dialogue. I, I'm going to use um, some framing in uh, policiesmatter.org. It's a, a great pathways site, pathwaysmatter.org. Um, and it, it's a nice list of 20 relevant pathway policies and they're grouped into five categories. And uh, so I'll ask each of you to um, invite you to make a comment 
uh, about each of these uh, categories, if um, if so moved. The the first category, and again, these are you, Amy. You can either address a federal policy or a state policy that's illustrative, but the first category is really just learner pathways. Um, Amy, do you, do you see any learner pathway policies at the state level that you think are uh, are really productive? Uh, so learner pathways is a broad term, but I, this is something that thankfully we're seeing, you know, almost every state has good work in some area of what we're thinking about is our approach to um, creating pathways to success. So when I when I think about the policy sets that we're looking for at the state level, we're looking to policy related to dual enrollment, but with an equity lens, ensuring that students are able to earn high school and college credit concurrently at low or no cost to them and ensuring that enrollment and engagement and completion is done uh, equitably by all students and, and in all schools, rural, urban, suburban, uh, and, and considering like how that's holding harmless from a funding standpoint, both the P-12 and the higher ed systems. So how do we motivate uh, you know, both systems to come together and really engage in practice and ensure that it's done to the degree possible that states may allow as a centralized systemic approach instead of one, two kind of agreements from institution to college to school uh, rather than done at scale for all. So there are you know, a number of states doing great work in dual enrollment policy and uh, I would recommend pointing you to the College and High School Alliance website that has a whole host of great resources related to policy for dual enrollment. So that's absolutely something that's key to Pathways. We want to get our young people a head start on post-secondary education while they're still in high school to develop a college-going identity, to you know start earning college credits, to start getting some traction towards their degree and some experience in the field that they're interested in. Another learner pathway, obviously, is related to work-based learning. And Julie, I'm so glad you called out the employer engagement side of this. Like, how are we thinking about education across P-12 and higher ed, the whole array of higher ed? So thinking about, you know, short-term credentials, registered apprenticeship, two-year degree, four-year degree and beyond, and how we as an education sector are engaging with employers to think differently about their upstream talent development. So how are we not just asking, I, I often cite this because it still sticks with me. I had a major hospital uh, described to me trying to engage with education as like being nibbled to death by goldfish. And, you know, lots of requests of like, can you be a guest speaker? Can you host an intern? Can you please do a job shadow? Can we have a job fair with your team? And it, not having a clear way for learners to navigate engaging with employers, but also from the other end of the telescope, not having a clear way for employers to navigate engaging with pathways and making sure that, you know, we have smooth and seamless systems from both sides so that students know throughout their learning pathway how to plug in and gain that real world hand on authentic experience, get the mentorship, get the, uh, you know, network building and social capital building that comes from work-based learning, but also that employers see a return on investment of their time and know, okay, this, you know, if I'm going to host an intern, it's going to take X hours. These are the expectations that I need to create for my staff to be able to work with teenagers and not just presume that they know how to bring young people into the workplace. And this is what I will get out of this experience because young people bring such a vibrant, new, fresh perspective. They have real skills to apply. It's not just making coffee or doing copies anymore. It's like young people doing real work in work settings. So how do we create learner pathways that are easy to navigate for learners and for employers who are 
essential partners throughout the whole learner pathway continuum. And from state to state, I mean, Julie hit on some of the challenges, like some states have really clear state work-based learning definitions. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, like Massachusetts with their connecting activities where the state holds the workman's comp uh, uh, insurance and allows employers to have a little more flexibility and breathing room to hire students. Like from state to state, the policy sets really vary in this space. Um, I love the Post-Secondary Workforce Readiness Act in Illinois. That's probably my favorite state policy in this space. Uh, so it can certainly point you to lots of different directions there, but lots of learner pathways. Thanks, Julie. What what do you want to highlight in this category? So uh, some of the things that the um, that the report highlights, Tom, is things are like CTE funding, um, cross agency collaboration, those types of things. Two things yeah. I want to point out on this. First of all, if we look at this from the standpoint of CTE funding, we are only serving a portion of our students, yes. right? So um, you know that's a huge struggle. You know, in my state of Massachusetts, I looked on the state website this morning. There are 435 high schools in Massachusetts, only eight of, 80, 88 of them receive CTE Perkins funding. So it, we are only, uh, if, we, if we're expecting Perkins to solve this problem for us, we're, we're only gonna get a quarter of the way there, <laughs> right? Um, so you know, thinking about this from the standpoint of the, the learner journey, right? It doesn't matter from a student standpoint, they don't really care what program they're in. They want a, um, uh, an education that is well corrected, connected to post-secondary education and career. And however that federal funding gets to them, it does not matter to them. <laughs> from a policy standpoint, we have built a system where Perkins solves half the problem. WIOA solves another portion of it. The you know early college programs are served in the Higher Education Act. We've built a policy structure that does not really travel with a student all that effectively. So that is an issue that we need to somehow figure out how to, to manage and tackle and all of the funding streams that therefore go along with it. So that CTE funding piece, I think is, is somewhat problematic and, and kind of holds us back in thinking about what is the overall pathway policy structure. Um, there are so many federal pieces of legislation that impact this right now, um, that it's hard to say this is the one thing that is sort of the silver bullet to fixing it. So there's that there's that funding piece. I think there are a lot of states that are doing a really good job at bringing together various funding mechanisms. Delaware, I know, did a, is doing a really good job at this, um, thanks to Amy's co-work now at the Department of Ed, um, Luke Ryan. Uh, the, you know, Massachusetts established the Workforce Skills Cabinet a number of years ago to think about uh, cross-agency um, collaboration on, on these issues. Uh, Colorado does it fairly well. So there are a number of states that are now saying, this is not one area's uh, issue to solve. How do we come together as departments of commerce, departments of labor, and think about this from the perspective of how does a student get from kindergarten into our workforce in a way that is effective and that state and federal policies can support that journey. Um, so I think there, there is progress being made in that area and, and there are quite a few states doing it well. If I can just jump in on that real quick. Oh, I'm so sorry, Shani. That's okay. I was going to ask a question from a participant. You go ahead and then I'll ask the question. Okay. I was just going to say like from our, our latest Perkins data, I am thrilled that over half of high school students in our country participate in CTE. So this is no longer some students in some programs over there. This is the majority of students in CTE from state to state that varies a little bit. Obviously in Massachusetts has a unique approach to uh, how they fund CTE programs, as you know. Um, and so I, 
I do want to say like CTE is foundational, but when you look at the federal investment in education, it's a drop in the bucket compared to state and local investments in education. And so I see us as being, you know, a foundational kind of mechanism for quality, for equity, for putting some stakes in the ground around what we want to see. But ultimately, it's really up to states to, you know, take take it the next distance and do the significant amount of funding to get it to where it needs to be. And from state to state, like additional funding for CTE varies. How states even split their CTE across high school and post-secondary varies. And so thinking about how we need to consider, you know, equitable pathways that span secondary through post-secondary into the world of work. Um, and so, I, I, you know, there's no there's no one size fits all. There's no silver bullet. I, I often uh, coin a phrase from a person I admire very much who says there, there is silver buckshot. Um, and so thinking about like multiple approaches, but, uh, but you're right, like CTE is not going to is not going to solve the challenge from a funding and policy perspective, but I do see it as foundational and increasingly growing. We just need to get CTE out of the box. And like Shani was saying, I would love for every teacher to see themselves as a CTE teacher, regardless of whether they're formally Perkins funded, but making real world connections, regardless of what content you teach, to help students bring to life through uh, connections with community through project-based learning, through authentic kind of investigations and uh, engagement with content to, to life they're learning in ways that that uh, span beyond just the walls of the classroom. So I, you know, I want to get, I want every student to be a CTE student um, and I want to get CTE out of the box. <laughs> hey, hey, that's absolutely right. And I think one of the the opportunities to do that, going back to middle school, our push for middle school is, uh, you know, the, the Perkins uh, Act, the last reauthorization allowed for expansion of Perkins into fifth to as early as fifth grade. Only about half of the states have taken up the charge to do that. We would love to see at least, um, you know, the a signal that that they are um, looking at using Perkins funds at a much earlier age. Yes. Um, and and it's it's one way of ensuring that it is reaching more students. Absolutely. Um, so, so one, if I could find like the finger snap emoji, um, then I would find it and I would just keep popping it up throughout this conversation. So many great things are happening, but I do want to make space for Jermaine's question, um, which is really tied into what you all are talking about. And Jermaine said, we see fewer funding opportunities for community-based organizations with initiatives that support students in higher education. Do you have any suggestions? Uh, so uh, not specific to higher education, but specific to pathways. Um, there is an, an effort ASA has been um, supporting with uh, Boys and Girls Club and other out-of-school time providers who are increasingly interested in uh, trying to find opportunities to be active participants in the career readiness space, uh, in helping with career exploration, in being the intermediaries for work-based learning opportunities, helping coach students as they think about post-secondary education and career. Um, and so there is there's actually um, there's a pilot program that is run through the Department of Labor um, and an effort um, in Congress now to expand that called the Youth Workforce Readiness Act um, to expand that it would be a grant program administered through the Department of Labor to out-of-school time providers uh, and community-based organizations to do some of this work. So it's not specific to your, your issue of post-secondary. Maybe Amy can speak to that, I'm not sure. But um, that is one effort to, that I am aware of to get some funding to, to the out-of-school time space. Just a big well, shout out for our friend Josh too, who mentioned 
building a purpose mindset and inviting kids to not just get a job, but make a job or make a difference. So uh, entrepreneurial mindset and, and uh, as Josh said, helping kids become solutionaries, I think is a part of a new way of rethinking CTE. Corey, a lot of, a lot of your uh, CAPS um, locations do a great job of that. Tom, can I say a quick word about that? Please. So the podcast that I referenced was Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People podcast with Steve Case. And in fact, there wasn't enough space in the chat to be able to write this. But I think that it was a fantastic conversation with Steve that gives you a wonderful overview of kind of the history of, of the development of an entrepreneurial mindset and all that. But I think that the two of them missed by not talking about the great barrier, which is K through 12. If there's no offerings or few offerings for kids to engage in the entrepreneurial work and the development of the mindset, then nothing will ever happen outside of the K through 12 experience to change equity and inclusion and everything else that happens in the entrepreneurial world. So I think that they actually missed that conversation, but it's still a great, great conversation as an overview. We we appreciate that. It's one of the things we appreciate about uh, real world learning in Kansas City, Josh, that right alongside work-based learning and client-connected projects is the encouragement for every student in Metro Kansas City to engage in entrepreneurial experience. So as you suggested, they build a purpose mindset and and learn about spotting opportunity, designing solutions and delivering value for a community. And we think that ought to be part of the new way we think about CTE, so. So Tom, may I jump into that for just a moment? Um, Hi everybody, sorry I'm late. So for the past 17 years, we have been hosting a global competition for teams of high school students to create commercially viable products combining education, innovation, and entrepreneurship. These kids are doing really amazing work. The big prize is not make a company and we're gonna give you a lot of money. It's the big prize is they become Pete Conrad scholars. It's in honor of my late husband who was a dyslexic kid and got a ride to the moon. Um, <laughs> that's a whole story, but, but the kids get patents and we work very closely with USPTO and the World IP Organization. And so they understand the value of their idea and they're there to solve global and local challenges in space, energy, cyber, and health, basically the whole world. They work across countries, cities, states, socioeconomic, genders, they don't care where you are, it's Gen Z. And they see the world without borders or boundaries, just like my husband saw it when he stood on the moon and looked back at earth. So this is happening people and it's been happening so fairly well, and I'm proud to tell you, we've survived 17 years, woo! <laughs> and we're about to merge with Space Center Houston, so stay tuned for that one, just expanding the opportunity to more students and ensuring our own sustainability. So I welcome this conversation because workforce development, we don't know what workforce is gonna look like in five years. Look at what just happened with AI. Whole bunch of jobs are gonna become obsolete, right? So training young people to be purpose-driven, to be agile thinkers, to understand how to think and how to learn is probably the most important legacy that we can leave for our children. I'll stop there. Thank you. Nancy. Absolutely agree, Nancy. Nancy Conrad for everybody that uh, 
We, we Nancy, we appreciate you and your work, and thanks for the, the yeah. shout out for those programs. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Some of you I know even. <laughs> And I think that goes that it goes to um, you know the point of how are we expanding opportunity for all students, right? It's not just about training for a career, which is sometimes, as Amy said, how this gets it gets pigeonholed into I'm gonna think and convince someone in seventh grade that they're going to be in whatever it might be X, Y, and Z. There, that is not what we are saying or anything that we want. It is how do we help kids build a mindset for continuous learning for exploration and understanding of opportunity for uh, entrepreneurship skills, which all of us need, um, for the, the um, durable skills that we know are so necessary for long-term career success. Those are the aspects of our career pathway programs that we really need to figure out how do we get to every child. Um, and it could be through a work-based learning experience. It could be through, you know, a early college program that allows a kid the first opportunity to understand what post-secondary education might be. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so important. Well, and we haven't, yeah, go ahead, Amy. I was just going to say, we haven't talked about the, like the role of work in human life and how important it is to the degree possible to, you know, give young people and their families meaningful choices, but also, you know, to make sure that they have purposeful, successful, but also joyful lives. Uh, and, you know, recognizing that, you know, education serves many purposes in human life, but every single one of us is headed to a job or a career of some sort. And so how do we make stronger those connections uh, and, and more intentional the supports for students to make decisions about them. And I love the framing around entrepreneurship and curiosity and community connections. It's not just, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up is the question that should be driving our engagement with young people. Like that's that's such a narrow and uh, and unfortunate term because our young people are going to change jobs many times over their lifetime. They're going to change industry sectors many times over their lifetime. It's more like you know, who do you want to be? What what kind of community do you want to build? What are the problems that you seek to change in the world? What what keeps you up at night? You know, drawing into core purpose and making sure that students see, you know, not just the array of careers that they're exposed to in their day-to-day -day life and their family and their immediate community, but see the incredible array of like, I've learned so much about uh, microchips, <laughs> for example, through digging into the Chips and Science Act and thinking about the incredible investments that the, the administration's making in bipartisan infrastructure law. And I've learned about EV technology. I've learned about, you know, clean jobs and all in clean energy, these areas that I would not have known if I did not have the ability to dip into policy and think strategically about how do we make sure all young people can see such cool opportunities and areas that we may not have seen for ourselves um, and make that a deliberate process of, of sharing information and collaborating with students, families, and communities to, to find purpose and joy and connection and financially rewarding family sustaining careers. Yeah, that's great. Well put, Amy. The way we we talk about it, with particularly when we're talking about middle school, is helping kids understand what they like, what they're good at, what the world needs and what they can get paid for. And somewhere in the middle of those four things, it will be a career that that will it should you should continue, consider exploring, um, but not picking right away, but thinking about it from that framework of, of those four aspects. We have some great questions from chat. I mean, this time has flown by. So we're just gonna pivot for a moment to some of the great questions. I'm gonna kind of start from a bottom-up approach, but Steven is asking, 
Um, Stephen's very curious about the efforts, whether at the federal or state level, that are helping bring more administrators and teachers into the pathways conversation. So not just like CTE directors or CTE teachers, um, either through in-service or pre-service education or leadership training. Are there some initiatives going on around those things? So we see this increasingly being a, a priority for districts across the country. So if we're looking in the P-12 space, um, I'm seeing it emerging more and more. The secretary, because this is really his core priority is to reimagine high school around career connections, is uh, doing direct outreach with superintendents and then having me follow up with the executive level team on building out what I hope to be a series of learning uh, networks and communities of practice related to this. So if folks are interested in connecting into kind of our learning communities on this, uh, we want to make sure that not just our big urban districts, which are critical because they serve so many students, but also our rural uh, districts and everything in between have equitable access and engagement in this because somebody could live, you know, in my hometown in rural New Mexico and work for the U.S. Department of Education now. Like labor sheds are no longer, how far would you drive to get a job? So how are we thinking about digital equity and engagement across the board? And we're also from the department going to be hosting a series of regional convenings on career and college pathways over the next six months. And so um, it, I will make sure that you have the link and can sign up for those updates. And as one is in your region, would welcome uh, you to bring teams of folks to it. And if there's anything we can do outreach to your home districts, your partnerships between K-12 and community college and business and industry, we're happy to facilitate roundtables, talking circles, and help elevate this as a core priority if it's not already being done so. And I think that's a really interesting, um, it's an interesting opportunity to think about uh, employer engagement because uh, if it is overly burdensome for whatever reason for an employer to engage with a school system directly, they might be willing to take in, do an externship with teachers, right? Teachers may have never experienced anything from a work perspective other than education. So how can we get, um, build up some of the resources that teachers have by exposing them to the world of work as well, right? It doesn't necessarily just have to be taking a high school internship that we're asking of employers. Um, how are we also helping uh, using them to train teachers, um, train the trainers in this way, right, and expose more work uh, education professionals to the world of work as well? And I see that Corey is making the case for our hometown of Kansas City, the home of the Super Bowl champs. So thank you for that for responding, Amy. Um, Lynn has a question. Um, she said, uh, Lynn said at sparknc.org, they're creating units of learning that can be stacked, allowing students to build their, their own high-tech course. Who is training curriculum designers which, with, with strong technical skills to create engaging units of learning that is truly engaging and includes durable skills? I think Lynn's comment is related to uh, Adam's question of how do we help, how do we help systems sort of reimagine um, pathways and Lynn is working statewide initially with 18 school districts to stand up high-tech pathways and do it in a collaborative delivery fashion some big districts and some small rural districts and so I think that's a really exciting statewide project um, that's enabling systems to reconceptualize pathways and then together uh, uh, help young people connect with um, high-tech careers so Adam, I hope that's a, a useful example uh, of an answer to your question. 
Anything else? Um, th there was um, there's a policy section in Pathways Matter about workforce and about employee engagement, um, employer engagement. Anything else you want to say on that front, um, Julie? Um, I, so I think there is a lot that states are doing to remove barriers to employer engagement. I think there's more that can be done to incentivize good behavior uh, from employers. Uh, there are obviously a lot of wonderful examples of employer partners like like IBM standing up, you know, PTAC model and others or employers who have really taken a charge to say that this is a, a solution that I am um, so actively engaged in that I am putting definitely putting my money where my mouth is and 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 sort of jumping in to be a solution provider. Um, so I think there is good work happening there. I think there is um, it, depending on the state, you know, there has been um, stronger efforts, some stronger efforts than others. There are some good examples of grants that go to employers, for example, to cover the cost of standing up new programs, um, tax incentives, particularly around the area of expansion of apprenticeships, uh, but and not as much in, in younger ages. I think there's a lot that needs to be done around the liability concerns that employers have uh, of bringing young people into the workforce. Um, states have tackled that largely either by changing some of the regulations or by set standing up really strong intermediary organizations that can take on the burden of all of that administration, administrative liability. So there is a lot of good work going on. And I think uh, we need to do a better job at highlighting to states uh, how they do that, how they do it effectively, and how do they get to the point where it's hard for employers to say no to participation. And I'll say like employers have some enlightened self-interest here. And Julie spoke to it at the top of the hour where, you know, it's it's not just the right thing to do. It's not just corporate social responsibility. It's not just gets them good press. It's foundational for them to do because as we're looking at the growing needs in the workforce, as we're looking at this really fascinating kind of economy that we're in where employers are struggling to find skilled workers, but unemployment rates are, you know, quite low. And so how, how can employers ensure that they have, you know, the talent that they need to drive their, you know, firm into the future? It's working with career pathways. And so I know employers are, are most likely to partner with community colleges or, or post-secondary programs and institutions of some sort, because they're closest to graduating or having the credentials and skills that they seek. But increasingly, employers are seeing the need and necessity to partner with middle school, high school, the whole array of P through 20 to make sure that students have early exposure and engagement with their industry sectors. And, you know, we think about the, the growing sectors uh, that, you know, whether it's, whether it's broadband and digital equity, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's, uh, you know, looking at any of the big investments. I, I was recently at a good jobs challenge grantee meeting that Department of Commerce had in which they awarded 500 billion dollars in good jobs challenge grants to um, consortia, many of which are partnering with K-12 and community college driven by employers. So commerce is now getting in the game of, okay, we're working to mobilize our employers to think about workforce development, which is inclusive of education pathways. Like I would say employers are at the table. We just need to have clearer mechanisms such as intermediaries that Julie spoke to earlier for employers to better engage. Yeah, and I would think I think 
one of the great things that has happened over the last few years uh, is really um, a focus on the fact that workforce development does not necessarily begin and end with community college, that age student. I think for a long time, career pathways, career readiness was seen as reskilling and upskilling. It is not. It is how do we take preventative measures to make sure that everyone has the skills that they need from the outset? Um, it is, and, and all of the other pieces that we've, we've worked on over time um, are an important part of it, but really trying to think of how are we preparing kids best to take on future careers. Um, so we don't get to the point where everyone needs to be reskilled and retrained. And it, it is a lifelong learning opportunity to continuously skill for a changing workforce, but uh, from a mindset of, um, of, of sort of skill building at the outset. Amy, uh, any closing thoughts on the uh, data infrastructure, learner records, infrastructure that we need uh, to help all kids succeed? Oh my goodness, we need a whole other hour or day no. for that. That's another program. And there's often such a disconnect and disjuncture, not just for the students lived experience between P12 and post-secondary in the world of work, but our data systems are often disconnected. And if we're really going to be able to understand opportunities and uh, provide seamless pathways, we need to connect in data. Uh, so that we really can stand by our commitment to equity. Um, there are some states that are doing that well. Most states are not, despite years and years of great intentions. Um, so that is I, a weak spot. Go ahead, Julie. It, no, I would just add to that. Um, some states do a really good job at collecting the data, but then don't, don't actually use the data to improve programs. So um, I think there is, there is still a disconnect there um, between actually holding the data and using the data effectively. Yeah. Well, then states could better connect, you know, they could do WIOA combined plans and bring together Perkins and WIOA funding and other federal funding into a more unified kind of data system and strategic approach from the governor's perspective within a given state. Like there's so much more that states could be doing to be boldly using reserve funding differently in the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, that's WIOA, or in Perkins funding um, to be more strategic about aligning across education workforce data. Yeah. As Corey said, to be continued, Johnny, how do you put a bow on that I'm, well, conversation? Like we hate to cut it off. It has been so engaging. It's just been really organic. Um, so thank you to both Julie and Amy um, for engaging with us. Thanks, Thanks so much, everyone. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.